before when e-commerce was quote unquote more of a side business, it was more of like a set it and forget it. Well, let's set it up. We'll set up the implementation. Then we'll look at it. We'll make some changes every once in a while where now your core commerce business is your lifeline. In some businesses, it's getting to 50, 60% of your overall business. And so you need to continue to change the priorities. E-commerce has come a long way from its early days, just as a separate part of the company that you set up and you hope to see some returns on. Now, e-commerce is pivotal for just about every organization. But there's one area of business that's still lagging behind. There are $17 trillion worth of B2B payments made every year. Yes, trillion with a T. But half of those payments are still being made manually, not in the digital world. Checks being written, wires being made. I guess that's kind of digital, but you get the point. Clearly, there's a massive shift that still needs to happen in the B2B space. And Deloitte Digital is helping make those digital transformations a reality. In this episode, you'll meet Paul DeForno, who's a managing director at Deloitte Digital. And on the episode, he helped us understand some of the struggles that B2B brands are facing and how moving them into the digital space could spell a massive change in the e-commerce industry. We also dove into some of the major trends he's keeping an eye on in the e-commerce world, including how e-commerce continues to scale around the globe, most notably in places like Latin America. Plus, he shares some tips for all business owners who are overwhelmed by the amount of channels and platforms that they suddenly have to play in. Spoiler alert, he says, do less. Tune in to hear more and enjoy the episode with Paul DeForno. Before we dive into the episode, I want to let you in on a little secret. Did you know that Mission has the number one e-commerce newsletter? It's amazing. It has really good news and insights and case studies that you will not find anywhere else. So go subscribe, mission.org slash upnextincommerce. All right, on to the show. Really quick, I want to say thank you, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And I'm going to allow them to give you the inside scoop into some of the findings from their most recent State of Commerce report. Hi, this is John from Salesforce. Did you know that companies of all sizes and industries power their digital customer journeys with Commerce Cloud? Salesforce Commerce Cloud delivers B2B and B2C commerce, as well as order management around the globe. And with Commerce Cloud, you can engage with your customers anywhere and personalize interactions everywhere. Scale and innovate with ease and drive some serious growth for your business. And speaking of innovation, we recently surveyed nearly 1,400 commerce leaders and analyzed the consumer shopping and business buying behavior of more than 1 billion customers worldwide. And we uncovered emerging trends that will influence how companies can be successful and stay ahead in this ever-evolving landscape. To check out the trends we discovered, go to sfdc.co slash commerce insights. That's sfdc.co slash commerce insights, one word. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Up Next in Commerce. I'm your host, Stephanie Postles, CEO at mission.org. Today on the show, we have Paul DeForno, the Managing Director at Deloitte Digital. Paul, welcome. Thanks. Excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. So I was looking through your background and I saw you were on a list of the 100 most influential people in e-commerce. And I was like, we need him. We need Paul. Why do you think you got on that list? (laughs) I, I think, first of all, in some ways, I'm the old guy who's been around carrying the e-commerce flag for a long time. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing e-commerce for 20 years. And and so when you've been around that long, you've gotten, you know, 20 years ago, it was, trust me, e-commerce is going to be big, honest. And most of the big companies just looked at me and said, yeah, it's, it's just a tiny percentage. It's not, we don't have the time to focus on it. Right. And so I've gone through the whole life cycle to, yeah, I don't think e-commerce is going to be big to, oh my God, what are we going to do? Everything is e-commerce. Yep. So what did your journey look like? Like, what have you worked on over the years? And then what does your role at Deloitte Digital look like now? Yeah, I've had uh, some pretty interesting uh, projects all along. Um, So we help customers at, at Deloitte we're one of the largest implementers and SIs all the way from strategy, studio design, implementation, and run e-commerce and digital platforms, right? So kind of soup to nuts, end to end for, you know, some of the largest internet 
retailers, both B2C and B2B. My background, I've worked with, you know, some of the largest retailers and brands in the world, getting them online selling and also supply chain and connecting up all of those things. So I've had the great experience of, you know, 20 years ago, working with some of the earliest big retail brands of them. It's kind of funny when they first started, they treated e-commerce like a store Mm -hmm. because at the size that they were on some of them, they were like, and, and literally they would call it store number 1099. And that's the way they treat it, almost like a completely separate channel over to the side. Yeah, let's put some money over there and grow it and then see what happens. Mm-hmm. Then it became more of a challenge of omni-channel. How, how do we make sure that the channels aren't fighting against each other? Because we dealt with you know, some retailers that they wouldn't want returns to come into the store because those sales were not getting them credit. Mm-hmm. right? That came back. And if they exchanged for something else, and so they would like be internal fighting because the bonuses of the executives weren't aligned. Yeah. And so you know, we've gone kind of like, it's off to the side. It's big enough to challenge to now it's almost the reverse. Retail wants to get more love from the e-commerce side. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a, it's a funny and an interesting flip that we see. I mean, we've had some guests on the show who said the same thing. Like when I started out in e-commerce, they had us in a different building, like on yeah. the campus that they were at. They're like, that's the e-commerce team. They're doing their own thing. And yeah, we've had a couple of people say how siloed they were. Yeah. And now, yeah, like you said, interesting how retail's like, come on, come give us a little love now. Yeah, exactly. So when you're looking through all these trends that are happening right now, I mean, I know that back in the day, you were going to a lot of conferences, you were flying all over the world, probably. And now I see and follow you on Clubhouse. Like, tell me a bit about, you know, how you're staying on top of the trends and what kind of things are you discussing now on Clubhouse or wherever else you're doing these virtual events? Right now, as we're speaking, it's almost a year to the day that I haven't been on a plane. And last 20 years, over 100,000 to 150,000 miles a year that I've been flying around. And so one, my wife has gotten to know me. Yeah. Um, actually Hi, being Paul, at, nice to meet you. <laughs> and, but it's given me a lot of opportunity to, to connect digitally and do more research and what, and, you know, you know, I think what this has just done is accelerated e-commerce and how important that is and commerce everywhere mm-hmm. and brought it forward. And there's a lot of interesting trends that have popped out and some of the things that may not be as evident. Um, So, you know, in the past year, you know, one of the biggest growth areas just for convenience has been around uh, the growth, the growth of commerce around groceries Mm -hmm. because we had to. Right. And so you got a lot of the biggest stores growing in anywhere from 70 percent to over 100 percent. And so a lot of the innovation has happened in groceries because it's needed to, mm-hmm. right? And the companies that invested more have done well. So for example, you know, if you look at how Target has done, right? They were able to stay open because they had groceries. And so they were they actually grew and were more profitable. And a lot of that, why they grew was their investments in shipped a number of different ways they pick from their stores. And, and so it's amazing that not only did they grow that much, but their profitability on the e-commerce channel went up, Mm -hmm. which is almost unheard of. They executed unbelievably well. And then on the other side, another interesting uh, related to the grocery, because it forced people to, you know, try something new, the largest growing segment on online grocery was actually baby boomers, Mm -hmm. right? And it was because well, they never were forced to do. They were always used to going to the store. And so we really see that as a watershed moment of, hey, they get over the hump. Hey, this isn't as bad. And then as soon as you try something and you do it a couple of times, it's going to change how people behave. And so we expect the adoption rate of um, going forward for boomers, for example, and older, it won't necessarily be at the same rate but is an important threshold that they'll continue to embrace it. All right. So when, when thinking about like these new consumers who are online who weren't, you know, thinking this way before, how are you advising 
brands to communicate and talk, you know, and do things differently because it is such a different generation coming online. We've had quite a few people mention like you have to think very differently when it comes to customer service or, you know, even like the whole unboxing experience, like people want different things. So what are you seeing among your biggest brands right now around what's working to connect with, you know, this brand new group of users who were not online before? Yeah, it's, there's a whole bunch of battling trends that are in here. In fact, we just, on Clubhouse, we had a, we had a discussion around the eco considerations of delivery. Mm -hmm. And that got into, we brought in a packaging expert. And one of the interesting thing that we talked about is that, hey, everybody has all these cardboard boxes, right? And people would love to find out opportunities to minimize, you know, what kind of packaging and, you know, and we all probably had the experience of getting a huge package and having like one little item in it. And so I think the whole consideration around eco and environmental is is something that I just saw some research that's at the top of the list of considerations. And so things such as that and packaging and reducing it is, is a factor of when you're designing for stuff. And so looking for opportunities that you can batch up, you know, minimizing the packaging or making it recyclable and also balancing that having a great opening unboxing experience. And so you have to balance those things, right? The Mm -hmm. environmental side and also the brand side, which is the expectations of brands such as Apple put on on this, hey, you want this great experience and opening. And so there's a lot of things that you didn't have to worry about even 10 years ago, because if you look at, you know, some of the studies of what, you know, Gen Z and beyond are looking for, those considerations are much higher up than they were for other generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely seems like it can set up some of the newer brands for failure, though, because it seems like you always have to kind of stay ahead and be trying something new where it could kind of take you off your path of building a great product and a great company yeah. when you get too yeah. focused on some of that stuff. So how do you think about the trade-off to stay focused, but then also stay on top of consumer expectations that seem to have very rapidly changed in like the last year where I wasn't really hearing a lot of consumers talking about, you know, eco-friendly packaging mm-hmm. and really caring about that. And now it seems like that's like a huge thing that we're hearing time and time again about this is a new expectation that you kind of have to keep up with now. I think a little bit about it is around how do you be authentic brand? And in many ways, some of some of the trends that we've been seeing is around less production, right? Like people that it, it, some of the advertisement or even things that are helping to con- actually convert much higher are actually user generated content that yeah. people are inauthentic. You want to see how real people act, real people in real products, as opposed to a runway model or a runway person like showing off this great. And so because of that, first thing we would say is try and be authentic to your brand. And, and especially right now, the overproduction is actually a hindrance on, on many brands. So for some of the larger brands you work with, I mean, I could see that being hard for them to, you know, want to keep up with the times, but then also staying authentic to your brand. Like you said, I know it has gotten some companies in trouble for trying to do the cool thing, keep up with whatever that trend is, trying, you know, jump on something. Like when these big brands are coming to you, what are they struggling with right now? And how are you working with them around, you know, this new UGC type of content that a lot of these smaller D2C companies are all like, yeah, of course, that's what we're going to do. But when it's a large company, they're like, I don't even know how to do that. And how do you flag it? And how do you think about the content coming in? You know, can I even trust it? Like, how are you guys guiding them uh, down that path? Yeah, I, I think the for many larger companies, in, in many ways, it's kind of a, how do you manage dealing with this on scale, right? Because in some of the smaller brands dealing with a few interactions, it, it's somewhat easier. But when you have thousands and thousands of followers or how do you manage that on scale? And so what they mostly get concerned of, they want to be much they want to be closer to the consumer and listen to them and interact. But being able to scale that in both a combination of AI-related tools and responses, but also people responses that can do it in scale that are tailored to the 
to the brand voice, that, that's the challenge. And so we, we kind of work through, uh, you know, different strategies to help them, you know, get through that. Mm-hmm. So what are some other things that these brands are struggling with? What are you hearing right now that they're trying to work with you on? We work with brands both from B2C to B2B. So on the B2C side, and depending on your, the different segment, like the B2C side on CPG, we're seeing massive spikes, right? Because of all of the purchases that we've seen, especially going through the stores. And that's a lot of the, you know, food CPGs are just spiking. And so they're trying to figure out, okay, great. This is a great opportunity to scale. How do we now embrace and engage and maybe put out some direct to consumer feelers to learn? Mm -hmm. And in many ways, you know, a lot of the CPGs are going way more direct. You know, some of the largest scale uh, CPG companies are doing record numbers of doing e-commerce, but they also partner with massive retail chains. And so they're trying to balance of not stepping on their channel conflicts. And so many are using e-commerce as a mechanism to explore, do special arrangements, special formulations, and learn and practically get data. And so uh, some of the challenges we see, for example, in that area is just, there's been so much innovation going on they're trying to keep up to the pace. Mm-hmm. And, and so they struggle with, well, what do I do first? How do I prioritize uh, on, on some of these? And, and so th- that's most of it is around helping to prioritize and segment some of the ideas to, to you know, get them into marketplace faster. So when they're trying to keep up with you know, what's happening really quickly, I've seen a lot of them acquiring some of these smaller D2C companies mm-hmm. and kind of putting them in like a mini innovation hub where it's like, we don't want to disrupt your process, but we want to learn from you. Do you see that as a successful strategy for some of these, you know, more legacy brands to be able to learn while also keeping their own brand identity? Or is that not really working? Yeah, I, I've seen some awesome acquisitions and, and unbelievably great talent that some of the you know, the large agent and, you know, just to stick, stick to the CPG space, that's been probably the most aggressive of picking up new brands and learning, mm-hmm. right? That's why some of the premiums are getting paid. It's not just necessarily for the product and what margins, it's also from the know-how. Mm-hmm. Because what ends up happening if you look, and this is something that that's probably the area, uh, Club CPG on Clubhouse is probably one of the largest clubs and they have an amazing talent there. And there's been a number of acquisitions and they're on there talking about their story. What's really good about doing some of those acquisitions is these people have been very close to the customer. Mm -hmm. And so they've really interacted as opposed to, you know, you're getting, you know, perhaps a new executive who's rotated around, right? Like, these people understand the customer and had that relationship, had to build up the DTC. They really know all the different channels. And so they're able to provide that voice of the customer and how to go direct so much more. So I, I've seen it be really successful and understand, especially some of the early purchases that they've made. Um, it, it's, it's actually worked out really well, more from the people experience than even the product. Mm-hmm. It does seem like you can lose sight of that. The larger you get, especially the more data you're getting, it's hard to be as informed and be able to actually find, you know, trends or themes. So when you're working with a lot of these companies, what is your measurement of success when you're like, okay, we, you know, are going to transform this company. We're going to bring you guys to, you know, 2021 and what's relevant now. How do you look back and see if, you know, a digital transformation was successful? First of all, it's important that we judge success by the way companies measure their success. So when we work with different companies, we try and understand what are their outcomes of success and, and, and their success can be, you know, the first thing you think, Oh, well, how much revenue did you grow? But some might not be right. If it's a new brand and they want to get out there and they're trying to change their positioning, their goal might be a number of stories that got out building brand awareness, right? Changing the perspective. And so we always start with making sure that we understand what are their key outcomes and then work and then provide some guidance on how do you get to those key goals? Mm -hmm. 
But, you know, looking at from a digital perspective, kind of like, as I was saying before, it's also important to have an understanding of the voice of the customer and the sentiment. It's one thing to say what people might, when you interview them, it's almost more important to see what they actually do, right? And using different, you know, tracking NPS scores, uh, using different, uh, looking at the data of actual purchase stories and, and you know, mapping it onto, you know, example profiles that then provides much more of a richer, like people say what they do is different than what they actually do and looking for actual intent and what they've done. And so, um, you know, making sure we're getting the right data is really important as well. There's a stereotype of the average American worker whose life goes something like this. Go to work, come home, consume some kind of entertainment, go to sleep, lather, rinse, repeat. If you're listening to this ad, then I know that that life does not resonate with you. For the truly disruptive business leader, work doesn't stay at the office, and unwinding doesn't mean watching TV at night every single night. This is why we've created Mission Daily, a podcast that discusses the trends, habits, and ideas that thoughtful business people are contemplating every day. From quirky business opportunities to interesting investment ideas to the latest research in health and exercise and alternative medicine, and maybe even plant medicine. Who knows where we're going to go, but Mission Daily covers it all. We're releasing new episodes every weekday. So join me, Stephanie Postles, and my co-host, Albert Chow, as we discuss the subjects, thoughts, and trends that business leaders think about, but don't talk about. Publicly, that is. Break the status quo. Tune into Mission Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. See you there. Even if they have like a lot of different outcomes, it seems like all the solutions that you could bring to them could be kind of similar though. Like, I mean, from what I've heard, it's a lot of, like, there's a lot of decentralized processes going on. So you need to figure out a way to pull them all in and, you know, reduce your crazy marketing tech stack. And like, do you, have you seen that on your side too, that, you know, people might have very different outcomes, but right now a lot of people have similar solutions or the solutions that you're presenting to them are kind of the same things. What we do to help customers in some ways is to help there's probably so many voices in the room and so many stakeholders is how do we help them bring them together mm -hmm. and help to prioritize and to facilitate that conversation? Cause that's the real hard part when you're dealing, you know, if, if you're just have your own one product and your, your own single sheet, you can make a decision and go when you have hundreds of product lines and executives around the world. And how do you facilitate the discussion? That's really what we help to do right? So be it similar strategy, other companies or not, you need to help bring the internal alignment. And, and that's sometimes the hardest part because once you get to execute, you know, many companies can do that. It, the harder part is how do you get agreement and prioritization with, you know, the different stakeholders? So what kind of advice do you give for anyone who's struggling with that right now? Um, like, what do you guys do to gain that alignment and yeah, have a go forward plan? start small and try something, you know, you could spend forever talking about it. Uh, you know, don't be afraid to, to fail, you know, get something in the market. So we, we try and do uh, agile sprints. Mm -hmm. And so we've, you know, from a development perspective, we've been doing agile for a long time, but we're also, you know, pushing into doing agile marketing so that we get into the same kind of feeding into that so that, okay, let's get something out there. Let's try it, learn. And then from there, go, go through the experiment, prove it or make the changes and then scale mm -hmm. and, and keep that on an ongoing basis. And, and, and trying to institutionalize that, that it's an ongoing, you need to keep, that's the business. And how do you keep rolling that? Because, you know, before when e-commerce was quote unquote, more of a side business, it was more of like a set it and forget it. Well, let's set it up. We'll set up the implementation. Then we'll look at it. We'll make some changes every once in a while where now, you know, your core commerce business is your lifeline. In some businesses, it's over, you know, getting to 50, 60% of your overall business. And so you need to continue to, you know, change the, the priorities. And, and especially as all of the, you know, the changes that have come down the line from, Facebook from Google is changing your whole marketing strategies. Mm -hmm. 
What about from a B2B perspective? I know early on you said, okay, we got yeah, yeah. you know these two different viewpoints. Like, what do you see in the B2B world, which sometimes gets forgotten? We don't we don't have many B2B people on the podcast very often. And it has to be interesting to hear what does that side of the world look like? Well, that's actually I, I've been focused more on that in the last year or two on because it's such a big growing area. So just to lay the, the land to understand how big B2B is. So from a B2B perspective, just in the US, there's $17 trillion of B2B payments done. Wow. And so that's just in the US. Yeah. Right. And right massive. now it's 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 completely massive. And half of that is done manually. Mm-hmm. Meaning somebody writes a check, they send a check off, it's a wired, it's not done digitally. And so when we talk about B2B commerce, again, people right away think B2C, it's just about the order. But actually, when we talk about, or the other myth or misconception that frustrates B2B people is, well, if you just make it, you know, cooler screen and easier to use on your web, then it'll you'd be better. So then those are the myths and the, you know, putting lipstick on problems. If you actually look into what the B2B challenges are, you know, number one, many B2B purchases are very complex and there's many personas, right? It's not like, oh, hey, I like this shirt, got it. They converted well. I have optimized. I buy it. Mm -hmm. You know, some of these deals are million dollars, half a million. And well, you need to go through procurement. You've got the business, you got the people using it, right? It has to be, it has to go through three, an RFP process. You have to buy versus, right? Like it's so much more complex on the number of personas. That's an important thing. So there's no quick, easy CX solution. Mm -hmm. Not to say that CX is important, but it's not like B2C. So the first thing, if you you start from that premise, that helps, right? Uh, And then the bigger piece is traditionally how B2B sold was, you know, handshake over lunch, mm-hmm. right? And traditionally, uh, middle-aged guys, you know, shaking hands and, you know, hey, let's do this deal. There we go. And the last thing I want to do is look at the damn website. Obviously, we know that's all changing. And, you know, last year was a big thing in the workforce. Millennials are now the largest part of the workforce, Right. And guess what? Many of those, it's not all men. They've all, they're retiring at a very fast rate. And so your expectation of your salespeople are, hey, where are my digital tools? And so when you talk about B2B commerce, it's about what are all the digital ways to interact, to be easier to do business with as you sell, mm-hmm. right? And, and in fact, what ends up happening is, you know, the top three things that people like for B2B commerce is order status, product information, right? And, you know, just doing a quick reorder. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at that, it's, it's more about, hey, how do I make it my life easier interacting with our customers? So that, that, that's just important to understand the difference between B2C and, you know, traditionally on B2B side. So what kind of opportunities do you see in the B2B world then? Like, do you see any, you know, new innovations coming about? I mean, obviously having a platform that can, you know, meet the needs of the customers. And um, to me, it seems like it has to be pretty personalized depending on what the business is and how your customers order. But what do you see right now um, that could be coming, you know, in the next couple of years to help B2B? Well, kind of seeing where, B2B is in their life cycle, right? And, and so in many retailers, they're now onto their third iteration of a platform for B2C. And for most B2B, they're on maybe their first or they haven't really, mm-hmm. right? So many of the B2B clients we're dealing with, oh, we put something up in like 2004 and we've just been living with it and we still have to use IE to access it, right? Eek. And and yeah. so we're dealing with web 1.0, right? They can't get it on their phone. And so a lot of it is just, we need to make it easier for them and looking for ways to make the salesperson's life easier to, to be. And it's not meant to, in the analogy of how B2C commerce is trying to be omni-channel, 
on the B2B side, it's helping your salesperson and CRM. And so the lines between CRM and B2B commerce have blended together. And it's really a tool to help the next generation business person to, hey, all my follow-ups, my data, you might get leads. Like, did you know your customers are looking at your products and you'll get that lead information Mm -hmm. and so that you can follow up with them? Or, hey, have you deferred... Like how many times has the business guy gotten a call? Hey, where's my order? I haven't got it. They end up spending like half their time. And so because it involves salespeople so much is that you have to include them early and often during the process. So for Mm -hmm. example, we had this happen one time. We had a customer come to us and say, man, we just spent all this money on this great new e-commerce platform for our, for B2B. And we're just not getting the adoption. And so a couple lessons are, in, and they asked us to come in and do an assessment. So we went in, we started talking to the customers and we ended up hearing this like three different ways. It's like, customers like, oh man, I love Joe. He's my best salesman. But he told me that if I put my sale through the B2B commerce, he's not going to get a bonus. So I still, I, I just call him up to make sure he gets his bonus. Like, it's like, oh my God, of course you need to get the sales person's incentives aligned such that they don't get penalized for using the the website. And that was like, oh yeah, that makes sense. And so Mm -hmm. also you want the salespeople to be, you want them to evangelize and get them to embrace leveraging it. And so that's such a key, that change management in B2B and getting your salespeople involved is is super key for success. Yeah, which seems seems like it's a big training aspect to it too. Mm-hmm. Make sure that they fully understand it to where then they can essentially sell the customers on using it and can act as customer service as well. Because I'm sure, yeah. you know, their customers will be like, I don't know how to order it on here. And if the salesperson's like, I don't know either, yeah. that's a big red flag. Are there any other hiccups like that that you've seen either in B2B or B2C where, you know, companies are like, oh, this isn't working. This new platform we're using isn't working and you're like, well, you know, let's talk a little bit about how you guys even thought about implementing it. And you left out a big piece like this, like any other stories around that? Yeah. And, and no, number one, it's always about, it's so important getting, if getting the voice of the customer and getting representative people early on to provide input and feedback, because what ends up happening is, you know, if you don't listen to, and we've had examples of hey, rolling out systems, trying to solve for what we thought was the problem, but it wasn't really the problem. Like the way you bundled orders or the way products were bundled and you prioritize that, right? And you didn't get the adoption when actually they're focused on another uh, another set of problems or departments. And so that whole piece about getting user input early and often is, is like so critical. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the number one thing as you roll that out, you, you need the voice of the customer. Yep. In times like this that are changing so quickly, how do you think about separating the signal from the noise? I can see, you know, just so many companies trying to keep up with other smaller brands and there's so many new things to try right now. It seems like it's hard to know what's actually going to be, you know, a lasting trend where you're like, you actually should put that as part of your processes or your platform. There's just so many tools and plugins and things to do. Like, how do you all think about separating the two and being like, this one's a longer term trend. And this is just like something short that we see dying off in like a year or two. The couple of things that we do, and and, and obviously there's things that you want to lay out and over long-term and shorter term. First of all, understand what your brand promise is. So depending on your brand promise, you might prioritize things different, right? Like if you're a luxury item versus if you're, an item at the dollar store, right? You have different brand promises and you want to be consistent to your brand promise. And so that that's the first thing. The second thing as far as in general on commerce is continuously look for friction points, right? Do your tests with your customers and see what are things that are causing them to stop, right? As, as you go through all the different steps of the purchasing journey, If you're seeing friction points, how can you reduce that friction? Meaning, hey, like this page seems really slow. I don't know why, right? Like let's reduce that. Mm -hmm. Hey, this content is not connecting well. How can we use other, like, so for example, uh, and I mentioned it before, like, hey, getting 
authentic content of the real users, pictures and view that, that will help people convert higher. So it's an ongoing iterative. So I think what you have is this, um, and, and that you're always plotting this, like how can you reduce friction and bang for the buck in a short term that you can do versus a longer term investment that might then pay back mm-hmm. because it's easy to be like, okay, great. Yeah. We need a 3d VR AR strategy. And we're like, well, how, how is that going to help? Y- you know, your mm-hmm. $10 item, right? Like it, it, I, obviously that's an extreme example, but like, if you have the uh, a brand promise and you look for ways to reduce the friction to make your life easier. And similarly on the B2B side, that's why I always stress when I start, when I define B2B commerce, I like to say, it's not about the purchase. It's about making your, making your, your business easier to do business with mm-hmm. reduce the friction. Yeah. I love that. So what kind of longer term investments are you seeing being made right now that they might not see a payoff for a couple of years? Because I know that Deloitte and I think Salesforce partnered on coming up with scenarios for the next like three to five years. And so it'd be interesting to hear what you're seeing being implemented based on maybe the scenarios that these companies saw you guys you know, put out there. Yeah. Which ranged to me from like happy to very sad scenarios. I'm like, <laughs> I guess it just depends how you're feeling that day, which one you go with. I went with the happy <laughs> ones. <laughs> and especially for companies such as CPG that aren't used to having direct relationship with their customer, for example, big investments that take a while to really understand is the data, mm-hmm. right? Getting real data direct from your customers that you then can build on. Those are things that do not, it's not like, okay, a couple weeks, a couple months and you got it, right? It's something that over time you build up and you start to learn from. And so that's probably one of the biggest areas of, especially getting your first party data. Mm-hmm. And, and especially since you, you might've heard here recently, like Facebook is reducing, you know, some of the data that they're sharing and how you're able to market as, and so is Google. So building up your first party data as a brand or building up your email list is so critical. And the benefits that you'll build, you know, definitely increase uh, over time. Mm-hmm. It's an easy thing to say, like, yeah, obviously build up that one-on-one connection with your customers, build up your email list but it also seems like it's going to be very competitive because every brand is trying to do that now. It seems like every, you know, commerce company is turning into a media company. They're all trying to have their, you know, blogs and newsletters and beyond TikTok and Clubhouse and everywhere. How do you think brands can compete and, you know, build up content that actually pulls people into, you know, their community so they can have access to access to that first party data? Yeah, so I think the tactics on some of those platforms on core data and getting some of that primary that's on to one side. I think once you get into kind of content and being outward bound, I think the focus is and kind of the things that we've talked to our clients about is try and be good on one platform first. Like it's easy to be like, Oh my God, we're so behind. We got to have a TikTok. We got to have uh Facebook. We have, we have to have all the platforms all at once. So we kind of guide them on, okay, start with one that's as close to your authentic brand as you can find and then try and build it and and iterate on it and master one before, before you really try and go after other, because again, there's limited resources and limited people. So trying to spread across all is a lot worse than trying to be good, at least on one. Mm -hmm. Where do you normally find yourself suggesting brands start out at? I mean, it seems like Instagram is always a good bet for you know, any company that has product pictures and things like that, but is that usually where you send them to, or is it always very like varied? Yeah. It just depends on where they're at. Like, and again, some of this stuff isn't cool, but like SEO and email marketing have some of the best uh, returns, mm-hmm. right? Like in the best, they're super still unbelievably effective. And so focusing on those and making sure those are, are solid, you know, it's easy to go the shiny, happy route, Mm -hmm. but like, you know, the core uh, of understanding kind of the SEO and how it's connecting on all your different content 
and how you're coming up in search results all across and mobile related. And, and again, email marketing on e-commerce on, you know, we did a study here recently and saw that, you know, some of the most successful brands are, their leads are coming from up to 40 to 50% of their net new sales are coming from email uh, related. And so, and, and you might do this like a port- portfolio, right? Like, hey, maybe you're dipping your toe in and into like, you know, get a few TikTok videos out there and explore with a a couple people, but you're not going and know that you're not going hard on that, but making sure that you get your fundamentals down first. Yeah, that's such a good reminder. I think just for business in general, but like to stay focused and make sure that you're not getting caught up in the craziness and everything new, like make sure you have your email list good and that you actually own that and you're sending out good stuff. So I don't know if this could get, this question could get you in trouble, but uh, I'm going to ask it anyways. What is something you believe around e-commerce that many don't agree with you on? It's kind of funny in some ways because I've come through the whole, like I'm the old guy in e-commerce. And so I've been the one being like, e-commerce is going to be bigger than it is. And, and I feel like in the last six months that now I'm like the, hey guys, Retail is not going away, mm-hmm. right? Retail has been here for hundreds of thousands of years. It's not going away. And there's a lot of proponents out there. I won't name any names, but our e-commerce is everything. And I'm the e-commerce guy. Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's not, right? Like understand it's easy. It's too easy to say things are black or white for clicks mm-hmm. as opposed to understanding the nuance, right? So if you look at in China, they just met, a massive milestone, they're now over 50% of retail is via e-commerce. And if you look at the states, relatively speaking, depending on which calculation you're looking at is anywhere from 17% to 22%, just -hmm. say it's somewhere in between that. So less than half of the penetration in China. And so I don't think over the long-term retail won't be 100% e-commerce, right? And over time, you know, it might get in the U.S. because of the way we're distributed and the ease of buying at retail, you might get up to 50, 60 percent in the next 10 years, but you're never going to get to 100. Mm -hmm. And e-commerce is not everything. And more of the conversation should be retail has just many forms. And so I'm now pivoted to make sure that we don't forget the importance of these great real life experiences and how it then, how you can balance and leveraging commerce online. Yep. Yeah. That's great that you've had to flip now to defend the other side, but I'm assuming, yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming you think that retail is going to be changing though, in some way or like shape or form. Oh, of course. How do you, you know, see like, that playing out? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll, you know, I talked about the grocery and that's a great example. So they're now changing the way they see their lineup because one of the biggest growth areas in this past year has been around Bopis, mm-hmm. buy online, pick up in store. Yeah. And so you probably saw, like you might've gone to a store and there's all these pickers, right? If, you know, if you go like half of the people in the store were employees picking for pickups. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, just recently Walmart announced how they were going to rejigger and automate so that parts of their stores or add-ons will be automated, you know, specifically targeted towards Bopis, right? Oh, and, interesting. and they're, yeah, and they're looking at, you know, maybe rolling that out over the next year or two, over 200 stores. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty significant. And then if you look at Kroger, you know, they bought Okado, which is one of the largest robot, you know, being able to bring together delivery in stage. And they're looking for closer to the store to provide support for, you know, Bopus as well. Mm -hmm. And so what you're going to see is this, the way real estate is leveraged very differently than, you know, the big, huge, you you know, aisles that, you know, with their big cart, it it may be optimized slightly differently. Yeah. And that's something I've been thinking about, like optimizing retail locations. And when I think about, okay, having someone go and buy my groceries, all the dry goods, just get what I, what I need. But when it comes to like my fruits and veggies and things like that, like I still think people sometimes, you know, they have a certain kind of avocado they want. They have a certain color banana they want. So it seems like there's, you know, a way to segment the store and 
this stuff can just be picked out for you because you know what you want. And then there's another part of the store that you can still go in and interact with and grab the things that you want because there's actually preferences around them. I don't know what that looks like, but yeah, it seems like an interesting yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. It, it's just going to change. Yep. So just a minute ago, before we hop into the lightning round, I did have a question around internet or uh, e-commerce penetration. You were mentioning that. And it does seem like there's a lot of opportunities all around the globe because you know certain areas have very low e-commerce penetration because of a lot of reasons. But are there any regions that you're betting on right now or that Deloitte's looking into of like, you know, there's some opportunities coming up here once X, Y, and Z is solved? Yeah, the, the area that has the biggest potential for growth right now that is behind. So if you look at, you know, just relatively speaking, so to give everybody kind of a perspective, from an e-commerce adoption, China's number one, Europe and the UK are generally a little bit ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and a lot of that has to do with, you know, they're smaller, smaller, and it's easier from some of the delivery. The biggest growth area that we see right now in the next short term is around Latin America. Yep, I was just going to say Latin America. I've heard a lot of VCs that you probably follow yeah. mentioned um, how they're going to be up and coming with them. So Mercado uh, Libre based out of Brazil is mm-hmm. one of the fastest growing. And there's also another shop app that's just skyrocketed out of Brazil. And so they see Latin America because they've, again, They've been behind on the retail penetration and they've been behind, but this whole COVID just pushed that all along. And so I think that's the next big, massive growth, you know, compared to everywhere else. Yeah, I was just looking at them yesterday. So it's funny you mentioned that. All right, well, let's move over to the lightning round. The lightning round is brought to you by our friends at Salesforce Commerce Cloud, who's our awesome sponsor. This is where I ask a question and you have a minute or less to answer. Are you ready, Paul? Okay. All right. First one, what one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? It, it might actually be how the shipper container problem right now, all the ports are behind and not clear when some of the massive packaging and shipping issues around the world get sorted out. Mm-hmm. That might be the determinant because if you can't get the products around the world, you might not be able to deliver what you want. A good one. Do you see any resolution with that? Like, I don't, I don't understand what the problems are there. I've not looked into the shipping container world. So, what's happening there, and what could solve that? Yeah, it's kind of a combo of stuff, and this has happened in a number of industries. It's kind of fascinating because it also kind of affected the way we planned. Right when you went back to the a year ago and into the spring, and when you went back to all the historical of what happened when you had a large uh, change and potential recession and what the impact was, you went back to, well, the shipping container industry went back and said, well, all are historical, we got to pull back. And, and so they pulled back. And what ends up happening because of the e-commerce shift and spike, their demand very quickly. So they pulled back and it's hard to like then build it back up when you're dealing with massive ships and containers around the world. So by the Late summer, they realized, oh, crap, <laughs> we're way behind and we need to catch up. So that was part of it. Then you have a bunch of issues of, hey, people on the essential front lines are just getting COVID and they can't deliver it, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a combination of conservative planning, COVID actually affecting people to geopolitical problems of, hey, we don't want to receive packages and you're looking at different areas in the world that actually impact that. So that, that's just another part of it that contributed to it. And, and there was an article in detail just this past weekend in uh, New York Times that went into a little bit more detail. That's an interesting one. And that's a lot at play. So it'll be, yeah, a good field or area to watch. All right, next question. If you had a podcast, what would it be about and who would your first guest be? Oh, man. What are the slow ways to be successful at commerce? It's funny because I've been on Clubhouse now for six months and you've got all of these entrepreneurs that, hey, make seven figures, eight figures in a month or two. But e-commerce is seems overly easy to get into, but to scale and be successful is very hard because 
there's so many factors that play a part of it that you don't have full control of it. And so if I had a podcast that I would do, I would say the slow way to success to e-commerce. Yep. I like that. And yeah, I've seen a lot of those people on Clubhouse with their bios of like, I'll scale you to a million. I'm like, nah. Yeah. Right away. It's like, oh, next. Yeah. I just don't trust. I don't trust it. Not for a second. <laughs> so what's up next on your reading list specifically around like e-commerce trends? Like what are you reading every day to stay on top of the latest? I I probably spend a couple hours of a day. I, I've, uh, you know, reading, uh, you know, lots of stuff. And so I actually use Feedly. I have all these keywords that, you know, kind of feed in and, and I follow a lot of, you know, there's a lot of great podcasts out here. So yeah, of course I, I got to plug my friend, even though he works at a competing company, okay. I used, he used to work for me, uh, Jason Goldberg. Oh yeah. Yep. Uh, the Jason and Scott show is probably the best e-commerce podcast out there. Yep. And, I like and theirs so, too. And, and he's also a personal friend. I've known him for a long time. And so, and, and, and so, and there's a whole crew of people out there that are passionate about it. And so I'm kind of geeky about it. Like, and, and so he, it's funny, you know, Jason has the retail geek, but in, in some ways I'm like more of like the e-commerce geek. Yep. I like it. Yeah. That is a good one to stay on top of. I like that. All right. And then the last one, what one thing do you not understand that you wish you did? You know, I, I've come more from, I'm more on the strategy and the technical side and the implementation. While I understand the marketing, you know, sides, you know, okay. I really don't have a, you know, the in-depth digital marketing uh, side of it. And I'd love to be able to spend more time and really focus around, you know, that area of, how to really effectively, you know, connect. And, and so that, that's almost like another side of the brain that, that, that I have not spent the time on there. Yep. That's a good one. All right. Well, Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show and giving us a glimpse into what you're working on at Deloitte Digital. Where can people find out more about you or where can they follow you at? I'm on quite active on Twitter, on the P. You can follow me and I share, I try and share a couple articles a day, like of, I curate, you know, good stories on, on both B2C and B2B commerce. And, you know, people can also reach out to me at, you know, DeloitteDigital.com or on LinkedIn. Amazing. Thanks so much, Paul. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, you'll probably also love our e-commerce newsletter. To get it delivered straight to your inbox every week, sign up at mission.org slash upnextincommerce. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts.